Praise be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, January 22nd, I should say tonight, January 22nd, speaking to you here about 7.30 p.m. at St. Patrick's Seminary after quite a long Saturday here. I managed to uh, get a lot of classwork done, knocking out some readings, working on some papers, uh, did my laundry, always a great accomplishment, got a haircut, and feeling pretty good at the end of this day. You know, it's, I don't know about you, but it's always a good feeling to come to the end of a day and really feel like it was well spent. This was a productive day. Um, there's always more. <laughs> there's always more to be done than you can accomplish in a day. But, you know, there's a priest I know back in Portland who uh, said once, there's always as much work as you have zeal. So, in a way... If you come to the end of the day and you find that there's nothing left for you to do, um, something's probably wrong. (laughs) And of course, you know, that's not an invitation to live in a way, in in an anxious uh, way, uh, but rather just a recognition that, um, yeah, if we're really living with the zeal of the gospel, there's always going to be far more work than we can accomplish. And that's good. That's okay. We're not meant to accomplish at all. We're just meant to keep striving every day, doing as much as we can. So, uh, yeah, I had a good good time today doing some study. I'm finding, I'm just re-realizing, re-realizing how much I really enjoy study. I really, I really like studying theology. It's difficult sometimes, you know, we, I, I tend to get uh, anxious and Sometimes about just making sure I'm uh, I have enough time to fulfill all my duties and looking ahead towards all my assignments and all you know it, it gets a bit overwhelming. But I'm actually studying, and uh, you know I just have the time to set aside to really dive deep into the works of of great theologians and church fathers. Today I spent some hours reading Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Uh, some of his works on the sacred liturgy. Also reading St. Irenaeus of Lyon, his book um, Adversus Hereses, Against the Heretics, and some other patristic commentaries, um, works by Pius X and Leo XIII, a couple of their encyclicals, for for several different classes, you know. Um, It's wonderful. (laughs) It's wonderful. As a priest told me here recently, uh, when uh, he was asking how the semester is going, and I was just venting a little bit <laughs> about uh, the academic workload that, I, that at that particular moment I was feeling quite crushed by. He said, you know, this time that you have here is, is precious. This time is precious. It's a gift. When else in your life will you have the opportunity to just dive deep into study of sacred theology? Um, this is the time, and it's short. <laughs> it's passing by. And that really helped to change my perspective. 
you know, to look upon time, upon this time, as a gift. Um, and I've spoken about that in connection with other elements of formation, but intellectually, academically as well. This time, this time is a gift. It's a gift to be able to devote as much time as I am to study. It's both a gift being given to me and a gift that I am giving uh, to God and to the people I want to serve one day. The people that I hope to serve, in fact, quite soon <laughs> in the Archdiocese of Portland. Um, they need holy priests and they need priests who are also well, uh, well equipped with sacred theology. St. Teresa would always say she'd rather have a, uh, what would she say, basically a well-trained priest, an intellectual priest, than a holy priest. St. <laughs> Teresa of Jesus, a living, a saint, a mystic. She said she'd rather have as a spiritual director a priest well-trained in the church's theological tradition than a holy priest, than a saint. And um, there's something to that, you know? course we want to be both. <laughs> Priests should be both. But if, um, yeah, well, enough said about that. It's just it's something interesting to consider. Anyway, I'm rediscovering my love for studying sacred theology and for study, just the, the discipline, the practice of study as well. I find it quite life-giving. Um, if I approach it not as a, a, a drudgery, a task to be uh, endured, but really as an opportunity to enter into something that I love very much, which is, um, of course, the study of the life of God and how that affects our lives as well. So enough about that. I also got the opportunity to sing at an ecumenical Vespers service this week. Every year, the Archdiocese of San Francisco puts on a uh, Vespers evening prayer uh, in conjunction with the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese, I think they're called, uh, of San Francisco. And so we had it at a local parish, and um, four of us seminarians went to sing. And the Greek Orthodox Metropolitan was there, and several of his priests and deacons, along with the Archbishop of San Francisco and some of his priests and deacons <laughs> and seminarians, and a smattering of lay people. <laughs> it was not very well attended, I must say. But uh, it was fun. It was great fun. You can actually watch it online if you choose. I can put the link in the show notes in case you want to go back and look at it. But uh, it was a fun night and I think a good model of how we can do this kind of ecumenical outreach. You know, it's a bit touchy because, of course, we can't uh, celebrate Mass together. Um, there's no intercommunion between Catholics and Orthodox. We permit them to receive the Blessed Sacrament. Um, because we recognize, yeah, the Orthodox have the Catholic faith. Now, technically they're in a state of schism. However, um, if an Orthodox, member of the Orthodox faithful, I suppose you would say, approaches a Catholic minister, he may receive the Catholic sacraments because he, he has the Catholic faith. The Orthodox profess the fullness of the Catholic faith. Um, unlike, for example, Protestants who uh, deny many elements of the Catholic faith. So therefore, they cannot receive our sacraments, but the Orthodox can. However, we cannot receive their sacraments because uh, <laughs> they think that the Catholic faith is defective as regards several important elements. So, interesting problems there. Um, but Vespers is something we can do together. The Divine Office, singing praise to God. We can at least come together and worship the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this was um, 
quite, a, quite an ingenious way of doing that, bringing these two communities together. And something I'm going to tuck away in my back pocket <laughs> one day as a pastor. It might be good to do something like this. You could even do something like this with a Protestant community um, in, the, in your city or something if you want to establish a relationship with them. Of course, Protestants don't often have the tradition of Vespers or of the Divine Office, but <laughs> perhaps you could come up with a creative solution. So that was a fun opportunity, and it's always good to uh, go to an event like that where you get to, to sing with some of the brothers. I always have a good time uh, doing that. So that's my week uh, so far, and I'm looking forward next weekend to the ordination of a dear friend, a Carmelite brother, Brother Joseph Mary, uh, Discalced Carmelite, will be ordained as a priest in Alhambra. We were students together at Mount Angel some years ago, and so I'm excited about his ordination, and I'm going to go down with um, another cl a classmate of mine and uh, another friend of Brother Joseph Mary's as well from back in the day, back at Mount Angel. So I'm um, looking forward to that next weekend. Therefore, I will not be recording a podcast next weekend. So this will be the last episode until two weeks from today. All right. I think that's all the um, background <laughs> information I had to get out. So let's jump over and talk a little bit about Mr. Charles Dickens, because this week at last, we have finally begun the Pickwick Papers. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. God bless us, everyone. What the dickens? All right, so the Pickwick Papers. <laughs> I must say, I'm very much enjoying these these little, um, oh, how to call them, this series of short stories, I suppose, these interconnected episodes. Um, you know, it's really not fair to call it a novel, because it's not a novel. These were published serially over time, like many of Dickens' works, um, in a weekly newspaper, or a, I suppose a, a magazine, a London magazine. The genesis of the Pickwick Papers, by the way, is this particular magazine, um, gosh, what's it called? I'm not sure. You know, I had it here in front of me and I've lost some of my notes here. Um, I, th I think it's Chapman and Hall is the publisher, and I'm not sure of the magazine, but anyway, they had this illustrator named Seymour, Mr. Seymour, whom they had contracted to do a series of amusing illustrations of sports events. And so he would make up these scenes of, uh, I don't know, a uh, cricketer, you know, uh, missing the ball at bat or something. Just these f funny tableaus from sporting events. And they decided, well, we should hire a writer who can come up with stories to accompany the illustrations. And so they hired Charles Dickens, who at this time was fairly unknown. I believe he was working as a journalist, and um, he was covering, you know, political news. <laughs> but he wanted to make a, a break into fiction. So they hired him. This was kind of his chance to prove himself, his chance to show his talent. 
And so he was working off of the inspiration that was provided by these illustrations by Mr. Seymour. <laughs> and uh, his job was to come up with stories that would go along with these sporting pictures. So, of course, one of the main characters in the Pickwick Papers has to be a sportsman, right? And uh, he's not the primary character, of course, Mr. Pickwick, but he is one of the, this group of four travelers, and his name is uh, uh, Winkle, Mr. Winkle. So he considers himself to be a great sportsman, but as we see from quite early on in these first chapters, he's terrified of anything to do with sports, <laughs> and he's really very inept. Um, he can't ride a horse. When he tries to ride a horse, he <laughs> ends up getting bucked off, and he spends half an hour going round and round with the horse before finally it escapes. <laughs> He's a terrible marksman. When they take him out to hunt, he accidentally shoots one of the other gentlemen in the company instead of hitting the bird that he was aiming at, and so on. So this is, you know, <laughs> this character of Mr. Winkle is kind of the... Um, uh, the genesis of the Pickwick Papers. And he, he's there in order to provide the link with these illustrations that Mr. Seymour was doing. The main character, however, is entirely Dickens's own, and that's Mr. Samuel Pickwick. And uh, he's the founder and leading member of the Pickwick Club in London. Now, um, I'm not entirely clear on what the purpose of the Pickwick Club is. However, uh, it, it, so far as I can ascertain, <laughs> their purpose is to collect interesting anecdotes from all over the city of London and all over the country. And basically, they're just collecting all these stories. And so they decide to send out four members of the club, of whom Mr. Pickwick, of course, is one, um, on a traveling expedition to go and collect stories. To, to go out into the world, into the countryside, and see what they can see, and bring back reports for the Pickwick Club archives. So it's a lovely conceit for this episodic story, because every week, um, Pickwick and friends can have a new adventure, <laughs> wherever they happen to be. And it's just another story that will be filed away in the archives of the club. So you have these four friends, Mr. Pickwick, uh, is the leading the leading man and uh, he's very dependable and he's he's a uh, well he's quite an interesting character you know this last chapter that I read this is a good illustration maybe of what he's like he was looking out of a window admiring this beautiful morning and waxing eloquent um, to no one in particular <laughs> about how, how could anyone live in the city after having seen a sight like this countryside? And going on and on. Then he hears someone calling his name. And so he's up on a second floor uh, w window or balcony. And he looks to his right. And of course, there's no one there. <laughs> and to his left, there's no one there. And he looks up into the sky. <laughs> there's no one there. And finally, he looks down and sees the man who called him down in the garden. <laughs> Maybe that gives an idea of Mr. Pickwick's character. He's a bit um, absent-minded, maybe is the word. He's a bit of a... I don't know. He's a bit of a dreamer. <laughs> he doesn't quite seem to have both feet on the ground all the time, shall we say. There's another moment that he uh, is out there with the other members of the club watching these military maneuvers and they find themselves all of a sudden caught between these uh, two 
two parties of the military who are having their training exercises. The one that's standing still to defend a castle and the other preparing to charge. <laughs> and they've ended up there because Mr. Pickwick was not uh, paying attention to the movements of the cavalry until it was far too late. <laughs> so that gives an idea of Mr. Pickwick, but he's quite a dignified gentleman and that's part of his humor as well. He doesn't seem to realize uh, <laughs> that it's his own absent-mindedness that gets him into so many predicaments, but yet also gets him out of them. <laughs> he seems to just sort of float through the pages of these chapters. Um, in, in good spirits, just very cheerfully observing everything that's going on around him. Just sort of bouncing here, there, and everywhere. So that's Pickwick. And there's also Mr. Winkle, who we've spoken about. And then there's also Mr. Snodgrass, who considers himself to be a poet, um, although he never seems to write anything. <laughs> and finally, to round out the company, Mr. Tupman who is a bit of a ladies' man, although he's uh, middle-aged and overweight and uh, quite past his prime. <laughs> and so this is the company. This is the band of merry gentlemen who go forth from London in order to discover what the countryside has to offer. Along the way, they fall in with this interesting gentleman named Mr. Jingle, who is... Uh, talks very fast, seems to be able to just work his way into any situation. In fact, he works his way into their group and sort of takes charge. And uh, he ends up getting Mr. Tupman into a bit of a sticky situation. Their first night in a uh, city, is it Rochester? I'm not sure. Uh, some city where they've just arrived. Um, he gets Mr. Tupman to go up to a ball, which of course Tupman is all too happy to do. And then... Uh, he causes a bit of a, a bit of a scandal, Mr. Jingle does, by uh, usurping another man's date and dancing with her. And uh, the other man ends up challenging him to a duel, and there's a whole series of shenanigans that follows. Mr. Jingle is a bit of a trickster. You know, he's this archetype, the trickster, someone who, um, well, he just isn't what he appears. We don't know exactly what he is or who he is. His background so far is not explained. In fact, we only just got his name about seven chapters in. Um, so he just sort of floats in and causes mischief and causes chaos. He's kind of like Loki in Greek mythology, you know. He just comes in whenever the story needs a bit of a twist, whenever it needs something unexpected. It, I have a feeling it's going to be Mr. Jingle who comes in and... Uh, turns things a little bit in a new direction. So that's basically the cast of characters so far. Now there's some others that we've just met. Um, there's this family at Dingley Dell, uh, whom the gentlemen in the last chapter that I read are currently visiting. And they're an interesting family with a, a uh, <laughs> little servant boy who's constantly falling asleep. He's like narcoleptic or something. And uh, an old grandmother who can't hear a word despite using her ear trumpet. So I'm getting a feel for what Chesterton meant when he talks about the characters being the primary elements of Dickens. The plots, you know, are not particularly, um, they're nothing to write home about. But the characters really are larger than life. And they stick in your memory. And, and you feel as if you can just see these scenes, you know. 
like I alluded to earlier, the, there's a, the moment when they're trying to get to Dingley Dell and they've uh, borrowed horses and a chariot or some kind of you know car or something from the inn where they're staying. And then it transpires that Mr. Pickwick has to drive the chariot and Mr. Winkle has to ride bareback on the other horse. And neither of them have the slightest idea what they're doing. And you can just picture this scene, the way it's described. The, both of them, you know, neither is willing to back down, but both of them have realized simultaneously just the gravity of the situation that they've found themselves in. And of course, the chariot ends up, you know, on the side of the road being dashed to pieces. And one of the horses escapes and goes home. And then they have to lead the other one around by his reins because he refuses to let any of them mount him. And so they have to walk all the way to Dingley Dell, leading this horse all the way. Things like that, the way Dickens describes it is just marvelous. It really paints a beautiful picture. However, um, th that was all just by way of, I suppose, introduction to the Pickwick Papers. But I wanted to talk for a few minutes here about an interesting anecdote in the midst of Chapter 6. This is when the company is there at uh, Dingley Dell meeting with this particular family that I mentioned, and amongst this social circle, all these people gathered there around the fireside for a nice dinner, is the local clergyman. And um, after some time, they begin to uh, wheedle this story out of him. Well, Mr. Pickwick, actually, who's always, you know, interested in hearing a, a good anecdote, he begins by asking the clergyman, well, as a preacher of the gospel, you must have encountered some interesting stories in your day, some interesting people, right? And uh, then the leader, the father of this family, uh, what's his name? Mr. Wardle invites the clergyman to tell the story of a certain John Edmonds. And so they all press him to tell the story, which he's reluctant to do. And finally, he tells this tale about John Edmonds, a man who used to live in the village. Turns out he was a bit of a, a ne'er-do-well, an alcoholic. Uh, he would beat his wife and his little child. And the family was very poor because he spent all the money that he earned laboring there um, on alcohol. And so they were an object of pity in Dingley Dell. And uh, the clergyman spends some time talking about how the mother and the little boy would always come to his church on Sundays. He says, uh, regularly, every Sunday, morning and afternoon, she occupied the same seat with the boy at her side, and though they were both poorly dressed, they were always neat and clean. Everyone had a friendly, no a friendly nod excuse me, and a kind word for poor Mrs. Edmonds. And sometimes when she stopped to exchange a few words with a neighbor at the conclusion of the service in the little row of elm trees which leads to the church porch, or lingered behind to gaze with a mother's pride and fondness upon her healthy boy as he sported before her with some little companions, her careworn face would lighten up with an expression of heartfelt gratitude, and she would look, if not cheerful and happy, at least tranquil and contented. And so there is this image of the church as a kind of a sanctuary for this woman and her young son um, who really have nowhere else to go. Their home is not a sanctuary for them. But at least the church on Sundays is a place where 
there can be a moment of contentment, of play, of delight. Then he goes on. Five or six years passed away. The boy had become a robust and well-grown youth. The time that had strengthened the child's slight frame and knit his weak limbs into the strength of manhood had bowed his mother's form and enfeebled her steps. But the arm that should have supported her was no longer locked in hers. The face that should have cheered her no more looked upon her own. She occupied her old seat, but there was a vacant one beside her. The Bible was kept as carefully as ever. The places were found and folded down as they used to be, but there was no one to read it with her. And the tears fell thick and fast upon the book and blotted the words from her eyes. Neighbors were as kind as they were wont to be of old, but she shunned their greetings with averted head. There was no lingering among the old elm trees now, no cheering anticipations of happiness yet in store. The desolate woman drew her bonnet closer over her face and walked hurriedly away. So it transpired that this young man fell into a life of crime, and he was, yeah, whatever, robbing people and different things um, rather than going to church with his dear mom, ultimately ends up getting caught and sent to prison and sentenced for, I believe, 14 years. Meanwhile, his mother becomes very sick, and uh, at first she would go to the prison yard every day to see her son, and he didn't want anything to do with her. And then finally she stops coming, and he realizes that her sickness must have progressed to such a point she can't come anymore, and the clergyman is the go-between between the son and the, and the mother. And so he asks how she's doing, and she's very, very ill, and finally he repents, and he sends word, and his mother forgives him, but they never see each other again. She dies while he's in prison. And he's made all these resolutions to go home and make her comfortable, take care of her. So 14 years later, he comes back to the village, but his mom is already gone. He goes to the church, and he sees her grave there in the churchyard, and no one remembers him in Dingley Dell. Everyone's forgotten him. There's no one left there who remembers the little boy of old who used to play under the elm trees. And then there's this scene, this interesting scene, where he goes back to the church. And I'll just read this. On a fine Sunday evening in the month of August, John Edmonds set foot in the village he had left with shame and disgrace 17 years before. His nearest way led through the churchyard. The man's heart swelled as he crossed the stile, the tall old elms through whose branches the declining sun cast here and there a rich ray of light upon the shady part, awakened the associations of his earliest days. He pictured himself as he was then, clinging to his mother's hand and walking peacefully to church. He remembered how he used to look up into her pale face and how her eyes would sometimes fill with tears as she gazed upon his features. Tears which fell hot upon his forehead as she stooped to kiss him, and made him weep too, although he little knew then what bitter tears they were. He thought how often he had run merrily down that path with some childish playfellow, looking back ever and again to catch his mother's smile or hear her gentle voice, and then a veil seemed lifted from his memory, and words of kindness unrequited, and warnings despised, and promises broken thronged upon his recollection till his heart failed him 
and he could bear it no longer. He entered the church. The evening service was concluded, and the congregation had dispersed, but it was not yet closed. His steps echoed through the low building with a hollow sound, and he almost feared to be alone. It was so still and quiet. He looked round him. Nothing had changed. The place seemed smaller than it used to be, but there were the old monuments on which he had gazed with childish awe a thousand times. The little pulpit with its faded cushion, the communion table before which he had so often repeated the commandments he had reverenced as a child and forgotten as a man. He approached the old seat. It looked cold and desolate. The cushion had been removed, and the Bible was not there. This is the last scene that we get in the church. I just found it very interesting, this tale, for a, cu a couple of, of reasons. And by the way, it does not have a happy ending. It ends, um, <laughs> if possible, even more tragically than that scene. Uh, I suppose I, I won't spoil it for you in case you want to go and, and read uh, the Pickwick Papers yourself and you haven't yet got to chapter 6. Uh, so I won't spoil that part for you. However, um, this tale that the clergyman tells, it's so strikingly different from all the rest of the Pickwick Papers so far. From the rest of that chapter, it's all comedy, merriment, it's hijinks, they're playing whist, they're playing pranks on each other. <laughs> Mr. Tupman is flirting with the spinster aunt and the grandma can't hear anybody. <laughs> it's just a farce, it's just a comedy. And then the clergyman tells this story, and that ends the chapter. And just before this, he's recited a poem about uh, ivy, how ivy climbs up, uh, you know, over gravestones, and it overtakes crumbling ruins, <laughs> all about kind of how you know, it's like, uh, from dust you are, and to dust you shall return, that kind of imagery. Um, the earth swallows up the remnants of humanity, and everything passes away into dust, and only ivy remains over the ruins. So, the clergyman is kind of a downer. I mean, <laughs> it reminds me of this scene from the BBC series Grantchester, where the vicar says, no one wants to sit next to a clergyman at supper. <laughs> Well, certainly no one would want to sit next to this clergyman. And I bet the Pickwick Club is uh, regretting the fact that they asked him to share this story at all. But I want to just zoom out and, and ask why... The question for me is why does Dickens put this story, this clergyman's story, here in this moment? What's the reason for it? And uh, the three images of the church in this story I think are interesting. The first one, as I mentioned, the church appears to be kind of a sanctuary for the mother and her young son. But by the second moment, um, in which we see the mother there alone and the son is off doing crimes, and she's there um, with her Bible and the same neighbors around her and everything, but all of a sudden the sanctuary is no longer a safe place. It's no longer a place where she can experience some joy because the one love of her life, her little boy, is absent. And all of a sudden, even the church has lost its savor of delight, um, the, the feeling that it once had of a place where she could be at rest, even for a moment. 
And then, of course, that third heartbreaking moment when the son returns and finds that everything he'd longed for in his, his 17 years in prison uh, has already disappeared. His mother has died and no one remembers him. And the church is there. It's just the same. The church never changes. But there's nothing there for him. It seems like there may be something for us to just ponder and carry with us as we keep reading Dickens. Of course, with the question, at least this is a question that I have, what is Dickens' relationship to God and to the church? And this is obviously a Protestant church, uh, probably Church of England. But we'll put that to the side and just ask in general, what's his relationship to the Church of Christ, to the Christian uh, church um, in general? You know, simply from this story and from what little biographical details I've gleaned about his life, I would venture to say that Dickens has a kind of a nostalgic view of the church himself. Um, the way that he's portrayed this little church with its dusty pillows and its, you know, threadbare binding on the Bibles. And <laughs> I mean, it's, it's um, quite a charming picture, you know, and yet ultimately it's, it's empty. It's a sanctuary, but there seems to be no power of salvation there, other than perhaps what you bring in with you, um, your family ties or your neighbors or your friends, you know. Dickens clearly has a belief in the, uh, <laughs> the goodness of friendship. We see that played out amongst the members of the Pickwick Club. And, you know, these, these well-meaning Christian neighbors are trying to do their duties of charity, but ultimately it's of no avail. And so I think this is an image we can, we can carry with us and continue to refine and try to apply maybe to other moments when Dickens brings up the church or images of God or religion. He seems to have an image of the church as basically well-intentioned, you know, um, there's something nostalgic about it. There's something sort of charming about it, but ultimately ineffective, ultimately powerless to effect the kind of salvation that's really needed. That seems to me to be the meaning of this tragic tale told by the clergyman <laughs> on an otherwise merry evening. So something for us to think about. I'd love to hear your thoughts if you've read that chapter of the Pickwick Papers, and I look forward to going on with you through the misadventures of Mr. Pickwick and company in the coming weeks. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur all right, this will be quite a short last segment of the podcast today. just wanted to share a few thoughts from Pope Benedict uh, on the subject of liturgical music and the theological foundations behind um, the music that we sing at Holy Mass. Now, my gosh, there's some serious fireworks going on right now. The neighborhood here next to the seminary, somebody is lighting off some serious some serious fireworks. Anyway, as you are no doubt aware, um, there is right now in the church quite a serious controversy about what kind of music is appropriate to sing or to play at 
Holy Mass. On the one hand, you have the music that arose organically from our liturgical tradition. You have Gregorian chant, which is the native music of the Roman rite. You have also um, sacred polyphony. Think of composers like Palestrina or Thomas Tallis, William Byrd, um, these great composers, especially of the Renaissance. And you have also modern composers of sacred music, which are very much um, in harmony, in accord with this tradition that's been handed down to us. On the other hand, you have spiritual music, which is often sung at Mass, um, much more often, at least in the USA, <laughs> than real Catholic sacred music. Um, you get a lot of Protestant hymns, um, which is not an authentic part of our tradition. We don't usually sing hymns at Mass. Hymns are for the Divine Office, for the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, but in the USA, especially since the 1960s, it's become part of our culture of, of Mass, and throughout the Western world, not just here. A lot of Protestant hymns, also just spiritual songs. Think of um, songs played with guitar, a lot of piano, poppy-sounding stuff, sometimes jazz. Music, basically, that's at least, at least as music, indistinguishable from secular um, music. You know, the content of the music is spiritual. It probably has some Catholic lyrics, although the doctrinal content often is not particularly Catholic either <laughs> in some cases. But, you know, it, it has a spiritual theme. But the music is basically secular music. It's just been adopted into the Catholic liturgy. It's been made to fit. So the typical model you'll see in an average parish is what they call the four hymn sandwich. You have a hymn at the beginning during the procession. You've got a hymn at the offertory, a hymn during communion, or one or more, and a hymn at the end during the recessional. Uh, absent from the four hymn sandwich are, of course, the propers of the Mass, the proper chants. Every single uh, day of the year, has its own set of mass propers, an entrance antiphon, offertory antiphon, communion antiphon, these beautiful Gregorian chants that are part of the very fabric of the mass itself. They're integral to the mass. But very often those get omitted and hymns are substituted instead. So that's just kind of to give a, a, a status questionis, the status quo of what's happening right now in the church. Um, the lay of the land around this controversy. Now, the question Pope Benedict asks in a couple of essays that I read today from his collected works in the liturgy is, what are the, what are the root causes? What's the root disagreement <laughs> between these two camps? Of course, there's more than one answer, but he traces, he traces a couple of very interesting historical developments, some going back to the very earliest days of Christianity behind these two opposing camps. And the battle lines might not be drawn where you expect. So I thought it would be interesting to go through those quickly tonight. So one is this. There is an age-old battle <laughs> from the earliest days of Christianity over what is meant by worshiping in spirit and in truth. As St. Paul says, uh, logike latrea, uh, offer your bodies to the Lord as spiritual worship. So what does it mean, spiritual worship? There has been one tendency in the church to emphasize um, the interior, 
spiritual dimension to the exclusion of what is material and bodily. Um, and the, the, the roots of this are very interesting. You know, on the one hand, there's kind of a Platonic uh, dualism there. Um, so privileging the spiritual element in man over the material, the bodily element. So therefore, the effect that has in liturgy is what's more important is what happens with the heart than what happens with the body or with the lips. And that's true as far as it goes. You know, what happens at the level of the heart it certainly has primacy. However, there can be a tendency to push that too far and to say, well, really the body doesn't need to be involved at all. <laughs> in fact, it's better if we just pray in silence. So St. Augustine, who... You know, he loves singing. He says, famously, only the lover sings. Only the lover sings. He says, he who sings prays twice. Yet there's an interesting quotation from his confessions where he expresses some anguish over the fact that he's more moved by the music he hears at Holy Mass sometimes than by the content of the words. So he has this supposition that he should be moved more by the dogmatic truths um, than by the music, because the music is just sensual. It just affects kind of the animal part of us, the sensitive part, whereas truth deals with the spiritual part, the higher part of man, which really should be in control, right? So that's this Platonic dualism. There's also a kind of a Jewish um, background to that, because, um, you know, hymns were sung in the temple, and the Psalms, of course, pre preeminently were chanted in the temple. But the Pharisaical school of Judaism, which had a big influence on early Christianity, when they were meeting in the synagogues, they would not sing. They would not sing. The Pharisaical school, Pharisaical rabbinic Jewism, Judaism, um, was a, a, a more of a rational um, development of Judaism. So there were no longer the sacrifices, and there were no longer the singing of psalms. It was focused entirely on the study of, of sacred scripture, the Torah. And the presence of God mediated through the word of God, through the Torah. Now, what is happening in our day, <laughs> just to, uh, to kind of trace this into the present, um, Pope Benedict says there is a spirit of rationalism which overshadows the liturgy. And so this, this became quite evident in the years following the Second Vatican Council. If you read the council documents on liturgy, particularly on sacred music, they are unequivocal. The council fathers say that the treasury of sacred music is the greatest treasure of the church's arts. Greater than everything else, greater than the Sistine Chapel, <laughs> greater than Michelangelo's Pietà, you know, our treasury of sacred music is our, our pearl of great price. They say it is to be preserved. Gregorian chant is to have pride of place, particularly in cathedrals. Polyphony also is to be sung, and on and on and on. So the council is very, very clear. However, um, among the liturgical experts who were uh, entrusted with the reform of the Roman liturgy during and after the council, um, there was a, an intellectual climate of rationalism which prevailed among many of them. And this rationalism basically is a return to this Platonic dualism, which I spoke about earlier, in a little bit of a different mutation. 
um, and also this movement from Judaism, from the early days of Christianity, which had a big influence. Of, but what, what they both have in common, and also the rationalists have in common, is, look, we've got to bracket off all this stuff with the body, all these devotions that people have, um, music, this kind of thing. What we need is rational, intelligible worship. We need worship that's simple, that can be understood by the average Joe in the pews. And so we need to, you know, when we have all these duplications and things that are done many times in the liturgy, just do it once, okay, get it over with, make it simple. Um, if we have prayers that are very complicated, we've got to just pare those down. Make it the kind of language that the average guy can understand. And with music, well, <laughs> Gregorian chant, are you kidding? That's so esoteric. No one has any idea what the chants are talking about. What we need is music for modern man. We need contemporary music that really speaks to the hearts of people today, and they can completely get to the heart of it quickly and understand what the liturgy is all about. That's the rationalistic movement. Now, here is something interesting that Pope Benedict points out about the theological foundations of sacred music versus the rationalist foundations of modern spiritual music. He says, you know, Christian liturgy, Catholic liturgy, depends on this fact, that the Word became flesh. Verbum caro factum est, in the prologue of St. John's Gospel. The Son, God himself, becomes a man. <laughs> he becomes man. He takes on human nature. He's born of Mary. And so God assumes human nature. He, he takes on our humanity. He takes on matter. He becomes bodily, visible, touchable for us. But Pope Benedict points out the incarnation, the moment, the movement by which God becomes man, is only the first movement of what is really a two-fold process. The, the word became flesh, yes, but then flesh becomes verbalized, <laughs> logicized, it becomes spiritualized. All of creation now is taken up um, in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus when he returns to his Father. All of creation is lifted up as he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all things to myself. And this now is part of our mission. This is, this is part of the mission of the church. When Jesus says you are to worship in spirit and in truth, when St. Paul says you are to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, part of our mission, we uh, who through baptism have been incorporated into Christ, we who are um, made sons and daughters of God by spiritual adoption, we who are elevated by grace, still remaining material, bodily, yes, but also lifted up to a new spiritual life beyond the borders of this world, even here and now. Our mission, as we worship God and preeminently in the sacred liturgy, is to lift up, along with ourselves, all of creation, all the stuff of the material world, and to unite in our own prayer, in our own worship, um, the mute voices, if you want, of creation, to give voice to creation and lift it up in an integral movement towards God, the Creator. 
So what does that look like? Well, look at our church buildings. We take wood, we take stone, we take iron, brass, gold, silver, stuff of the earth, and we make it something holy. We make a church, we make an altar, we make a chalice. We build a pipe organ. We take wood and brass, and it gives voice to the praises of God's people. And in the first place, we should say with our own bodies, as we worship, we worship in spirit and truth. We also spiritualize the body. The body gets lifted up and integrated. And the human voice, which is a part of us, gets lifted up and integrated, spiritualized. It's not left behind, it's not subsumed, but we get integrated as a whole person, as the highest part of us praises God, not separately from the lower or the rest, but lifting now all of it up, integrating it in one action of praise, of worship to Almighty God. And so now sacred music, which is integral, essential to the liturgy, uh, serves this movement. Music, which is the perhaps highest expression of the lowest part of man, <laughs> at least according to the Platonic view of the human person, you know, music can be quite an ambiguous thing. Um, music can have a kind of a, an ecstatic, almost a, um, I don't know, narcotic effect, <laughs> can't it, uh, on a human being. Um, but music spiritualized, music put into service of divine worship, can have a mystical effect. Whereby, and I, I've experienced this, and I've, I've seen it, and I felt it myself, at masses where, you know, the Gregorian chants or these beautiful polyphony pieces are sung beautifully. The heart is wounded by the beauty. A deep silence descends over the church. No one is coughing. No one dares to move. Everyone is enraptured, listening, listening and meditating. And their hearts are lifted up all together now lifted up in praise and in adoration of the sublime beauty of God, which is glimpsed somehow by the soul in the beauty of this music. That's the proper role of sacred music in Christian liturgy, to integrate us both individually at the level of our person, so that our bodies are lifted up, spiritualized, integrated into the soul, praising God, and also the whole gathered community is somehow integrated together as one, singing together or listening together, participating in the beauty of God and the, and the action of giving praise to his, to his beauty, to His name. And so that's uh, quite an exalted view of sacred music, the role of music in Christian liturgy. and. Um, also the role of liturgy in the whole cosmos, the whole created order. It's really at the heart of Pope Benedict's liturgical theology, the cosmic dimension of sacred liturgy. It's very, very far, <laughs> need I even say this? Very, very far from a rationalistic or utilitarian idea of liturgy, which says, well, you know, we're all basically here. Yeah, we love God and stuff, but <laughs> this is basically about us, right? It's horizontal dimension. Um, it's basically about the community. We all love each other and we're, we're going to affirm each other. And, you know, we're here to 
um, get some strength to go back out there and do our mission. And, and so we just need to have some music to kind of inspire us, you know, just get us pumped up and we'll go back out into the world in an hour or so and just get back to work. That's basically the rationalist and utilitarian idea of liturgy. Very different from Pope Benedict's vision, which is vertical now, integrating the human person, integrating the gathered community, the church, and integrating all of creation in giving voice to the praises of Almighty God. So this is important to just have in the back of our minds. Um, <laughs> for me, as I'm thinking about my future role as a pastor and uh, the work I hope to do in the parish, gently, gradually, but firmly moving uh, towards this sacred music, this vision of sacred music. It will take time to build these things up, but, you know, God gives all the time in the world to, <laughs> in a sense, accomplish these goals. So this is important for me to have in the back of my mind because um, it's not just about a question of aesthetics or a question of personal taste. And that's what these things often get boiled down to. Oh, well, you just like all that old, you know, stuffy old music. And yeah, we'll humor that. But <laughs> really, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of taste. The next pastor is going to come in and he loves the guitar stuff. And so we'll keep those in the back room for when the, the new guy comes and we can break him out again. You know what I mean? And really what's needed, I'm, I'm convinced, what's needed is... Yeah, there needs to be the change of music in order to make our worship more sacred, more integrated, more reverent, and more worthy of Almighty God. But also, there has to be this deep formation, um, beginning with myself, and of the people in the pews, and the ministers, the singers, the cantors, the choir directors, of what is it that we're doing when we come to Holy Mass? What is it that this is all about? If we get that, if we get that right, if we have a right view of who the human person is, what is the vocation of a human being, um, what is the role of liturgy in the whole cosmos, the whole created order, what did God make us for, why do we come here and celebrate Holy Mass? It's not just to sing some nice songs and get a cracker. We come here in order to be the voice of all of creation singing praise to God the Creator. That, I think, that vision, um, properly appropriated, <laughs> will naturally inspire the downstream effects of changing the culture of sacred worship and sacred music in our parishes and in our churches. So let me know what you think. Um, of course, this is not um, magisterial teaching per se, the teaching on sacred music, you know, what kind of music is required, that's magisterial. But the, the theological foundation, this is just Pope Benedict's personal reflections, and I find it very compelling. I'll be interested to know um, your own thoughts as well. Well, dear friends, we've come to the end at last of this podcast, and uh, I need to go inside and uh, I think have a cup of hot tea. My throat is getting a little hoarse from the cold air out here. But it was wonderful to uh, record this tonight, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you not next weekend, but the week after that. Until then, dear friends in Christ, may Almighty God bless us, protect us from all evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. Amen.